Yippee-ki-yay, movie fans. We're back with the film frontier. Today we're going to talk about the 1966 film Django, directed by Sergio Corbucci and starring Franco Nero. To start off, we want to make sure that, you know, it is not the Quentin Tarantino film Django Unchained. A lot of people get that confused. Um, But we can talk more about the connection to that more recent film later Mm. in the podcast. Right. This is a movie that spawned like over 30 unofficial sequels. The plot of the film, uh, it follows an ex-Union soldier uh, wandering the West. He's dragging a coffin behind him. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. He arrives in a border town and gets mixed up in a feud between a group of uh, ex-Confederate racists led by Major Jackson and a group of Mexican revolutionaries led by General Hugo. And he gets involved with them after he rescues a woman who has ties to both groups. But we later learn that uh, Django has come to this town not by accident, but to settle a score as well. Who was that man? What was his secret? It's not important. And if I bothered you, will you accept my apology? He was pitiless in revenge. Quick to decide and a master of every weapon. A man everybody would like to have seen dead. Yeah, his name is Django. Django, the title of a film you'll never forget. Django. How many men you got left? You tongue-tied? Or don't want to tell me? <laughs> Too bad, Maria. Django, an audacious man of action, capable of a tender, hopeless love which could only last a day, but a day which was worth all eternity. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. Very glad. I mean Django. A new, ruthless, violent film. Featuring a great new star, Franco Nero. And a great supporting cast. And to start, like, just for anybody who doesn't know what a spaghetti western is or an Italian western. Yeah, this is the first time we've covered one in the podcast. Yeah, this is our and first I'm one. I'm sure we will cover many more as it's such a crucial part of the western genre. Yes, kind of revitalized the western in the 60s. This one is directed by Corbucci, who 
directed a number of westerns and was one of the major players in the in the genre. Um, basically, in this era, the Italian film industry was always looking for ways to pump out B-movies, movies for mass audiences, not your Fellini or Antonioni-type films. Prior to this, the sword and sandal strongman movies had been really popular. Goliath, who dared gamble his fantastic strength against wild horses in the flesh-tearing test of truth. But by the early 60s, they were starting to wane in popularity, and they were always looking for something new, and they started making westerns. And West Germany had kind of done this too, doing uh, Karl May films, or Karl May, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. What was the appeal for the Italians of, of the West? I think uh, westerns were just popular in Europe. American westerns yeah. were popular. And the early uh, spaghetti westerns were made to seem like American westerns. I think the idea mm -hmm. was to fool European audiences into thinking they were the genuine article from America. And often the, all the, the names of all the actors and, and crews would be changed and Americanized. Like Sergio Leone for Fistful of Dollars, the original prints for that would say directed by Bob Robertson. <laughs> And like Ennio Morricone would be credited as Dan Savio or mm -hmm. something like that. It was a fistful of dollars that really kickstarted the genre and and changed it and and caused the shift from trying to copy American films to becoming its own thing. And everybody tried to imitate the success of Leone's film. They all tried to find the next Clint Eastwood. Arguably, everybody is still trying to both copy Sergio Leone and find the next Clint Eastwood. Yes. Just look at the career of Scott Eastwood <laughs> for proof of that. True. Well, yeah, Leone's influence on the genre is is monumental. Yes. I mean, up there with Ford, I think. Mm -hmm. And but, not just uh, Leone's influence, but also uh, Morricone's music is, yes. is obviously still copied today. And yes. Formed a lot of, I think, great composers' careers in trying to emulate. Them. Absolutely, it's funny. Like you'll see commercials nowadays that spoof westerns, and often they will have a black hat, white hat guy, but it'll be shot in a Leone style with Morricone mm -hmm. music, which is a weird mashup of like old westerns from America mm -hmm. and the in the Italian western. Just the other day, I think we saw a trailer where you were like, oh, that's Ecstasy of Gold. Yeah. But it was a completely non-Western movie. I can't yeah. remember what it was. Yeah, I don't remember what now. that was either, but yeah, I but recall yeah. hearing the music. Oh, and generally, these movies would, would feature actors from all over Europe. Exteriors often shot in Spain um, with interiors back in Rome. And you have some... I mean, Spain looks pretty good for the West, but you, yeah. you can definitely tell... Uh, with certain, I think, shots of mountains that it's not quite an American landscape. Right. And and you get some little subtleties in the creation of the sets with, like, the signage doesn't look quite right. Right, and... right. It's very clear that these weren't made in America. Yeah. I mean, but that's part of the charm of them. Uh, with using all the actors from various countries, like, you might have actors... Uh, sharing a scene together and speaking different languages because mm -hmm. these were all meant to be dubbed into the language of whatever territory they were distributed in. Now in this film, I notice that you're not recording any direct sound. Uh, speech uh, usually in Westerns of minor importance because we use every nationality, French, uh, Mexican, American. It is often better for the actors to count uh, uh, than to speak. For example, uh, the Frenchman would say, en de trois, the American says, uh, one, that means yes, but it could mean anything. It's unimportant, that's why I hate Westerns. After this, Mr. Corbucci, what films will you do? A Western, naturally. And I, I should say, we watched Django with the Italian soundtrack because the American dub of this version is not particularly good. Django, I think you should make a last request. I'll be glad to oblige you any way I can. Start praying if you like. I don't mind. It's a smart thing to do when you know that death is coming for you. I, I 
generally prefer to watch spaghetti westerns with the American dub, particularly when there's uh, American actors in it. But this movie, I think, plays better with the Italian dub. And for clip purposes, we'll play the English dub, yeah. just obviously. It yeah. might play a little bit better for radio. Yes, for podcasts. And even for the English or the Italian uh, dub version, it's not even Franco Nero's voice. Right, right. So you're not missing a performance there. Right, which is interesting. Like later in later films, later westerns that Nero would do, he would do his own English dubbing, and I think his Italian dubbing as well. Um, but, but for this early film, he did not. Yeah, this is one of his first performances. I think he's twenty three. Yeah. Um, this is his breakout yeah. role. Yeah. I don't know how well known he is to American audiences, but this sort of elevated him to superstar status in Europe. Um, well, in the next year, he would star in Camelot. Camelot. <laughs> A yes. big Hollywood musical. Um, and that would, I think, would be the the way any Americans know him, other than yeah. Django. Or, yeah. If you're if, not... Yeah. If you're not a European cinephile, uh, that's how. I mean, he's also the longtime partner of Vanessa Redgrave. Right. met on Camelot. Right. And, and Nero was cast in this movie. Corbucci reached out to him. Nero had made just a few... He'd done a few roles in films, nothing major. And Corbucci reached out to him, and he was hesitant to accept the role at first because he thought, oh, I want to be a serious actor. I want to be in important films, and I, what is this, a Western in Italy? And his agent at the time was the wife of Elio Petri, who's an Italian director who did films like Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, lots of artsy films. And he told him, you know, who knows you? And Nero said, well, no one. And he goes, exactly, so <laughs> it won't hurt if this movie's a flop, mm-hmm. you know. But it ended up changing his career. Uh, yeah and uh, launching into stardom. And he would go on to star in, you know, giallos and cop films and was a leading man, you know, through the 70s and 80s uh, in Europe and Italy. It's, it's hard to hear a little bit that the Western looked down upon so much as like a B film or right. not worth your time if you're a serious actor. But you right. think about the time it's coming and it's following kind of the decline of the movie Western. Right. Um, it's been a well-trodden territory by that time and you're really getting into TV Westerns being popular. Yeah, the yeah the, the feature Western in America was on the downturn and TV Westerns were just churning, churned out every week. So, you know, it was just getting old hat. Yeah. And this was a shot in the arm uh, around the world for, for Westerns. I like your language, old hat, shot in the arm. <laughs> it's, it's really keeping with the theme. <laughs> But but you have it make his career, as you say, just yes. like it, there are a lot of great Western actors, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, who become famous because, because of this look down upon genre. Yeah, I would even say that a lot of people who grew up watching Westerns after more people born after this movie was made or the spaghetti westerns were huge like think of the spaghetti westerns as the the way to do a western mm-hmm. you know it's interesting it's a different yeah. uh, different approach but definitely made its impact mm-hmm. um corbucci uh directed 13 westerns he uh was sometimes called the other sergio because leone was obviously the king of the spaghetti western but corbucci had an enormous influence on the genre and and of course made a lot more films than sergio leone in 1966 alone he had three westerns out django ringo and his golden pistol also known as johnny oro and uh, navajo joe which starred burt reynolds I'd say his best film is probably 1968's The Great Silence. Yes. Which I think is an excellent Western, just spaghetti or otherwise. And um, we're definitely going to cover that at yeah, some point. Yeah. Uh, there's a recent restoration that we saw in right, theaters, right. And, and we need to take another look at it. The version of Django we watched was the new Arrow video restoration. Uh, which looked great. Yeah, it did. It looked great really picture. good. Yeah. Be- the best I'd ever seen in the mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. My first experience was like a bad third generation VHS tape, and it just <laughs> it, it looked bad, and the dubbing was bad. Mm-hmm. And 
and it kind of colored my impression of the film. Since watching it, I've, I've, I've grown to appreciate it even more, you know, as I've seen better versions of it. And I got to see the Italian dub. and Yeah, I think you said that you've enjoyed it more every time you've watched yeah. it, which is a great thing to hear about a movie, that yeah. it, it improves. Definitely. I think the second half of the film kind of drags a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Um, but the first half, I, I think I really like. I like the pacing of it. I like the way mm -hmm. it's shot. It's kind of slower. Well, I think the difference in the acts, that to me, read as a result of there not really being a script or, or at least like a polished put together right script. right I, I think it's a lot of little pieces sewn together and the pieces are are fine on their own it's just not really cohesive right i think some segments are better than others like you said the, the first one i agree and this film was inspired by uh, as a fistful of dollars was inspired by kurosawa's film yojimbo mm -hmm. so it's sort of borrowing from fistful of dollars and yojimbo and so it's an you know it's a a, a guy running in a town and Pitting two sides against each other, that kind of thing. I thought it was interesting when it was when Django was released in Japan. It was released as a remake of Yojimbo, but a sequel to Fistful of Dollars. Right, which is really weird. <laughs> I wonder what the dubbing was on that to right. uh, make all that work. You mentioned one of Corbucci's other westerns is Navajo Joe, starring mm -hmm. Burt Reynolds, and mm -hmm. there's actually a story of of Burt showing up on set and visiting. If you want to, yeah, that quickly. they were shooting um, in Rome at Elio Studios. There was like a western town there um, in the winter of 66 I guess early January February and Bert showed up uh, he was there he was there he was gonna do um, Navajo Joe and he happened to be there the day they were shooting the scene where one of Jackson's men gets his ear cut off and fed to him by the uh, the Mexican revolutionaries and uh, Bert was very impressed by this according to Corpucci <laughs> and Bert asked what kind of stuff is this and Corpucci said this is Western Italian style made of hyperboles but this you've just seen is a scene everybody will remember. <laughs> and you could say that Tarantino perhaps is paying an homage to this or stealing in the scene in Reservoir Dogs where yes. Michael Madsen cuts off uh, the yeah. ear of the guy. And now might be another good time just to talk generally about the violence of the movie. It's yeah. uh, fairly intense, at least by the period standards, yeah. maybe not today, yeah. given all of Tarantino's filmography at least. <laughs> but it was actually wasn't accepted by the censors in the UK because of the violence, yes. partially because of the, the ear scene, uh, just also the amount of deaths. I think there's well over a hundred. Right deaths in the film there's also a, a gnarly scene where Django's hands get trampled oh, and, yeah that's really gruesome and yeah. violent and and yeah not to spoil anything but Django keeps a machine gun in his coffin <laughs> and mows down all of the bad guys mm -hmm. uh in mass carnage yeah wasn't it until like 1993 or 94 that it was okayed yeah. in in the UK mm -hmm. when the movie Django came out it pushed spaghetti westerns from away uh, further away from the Leone Way because if you looked at the Leone films, even though they really seemed radical at the time, they're actually very much just a more operatic version of the Hollywood Western. You could tell that he really loved the Hollywood Western, and and so he's so there's a more operatic, more ritualized version of uh, the kind of westerns that were done in, in Hollywood. Kerbucci took it to a much more violent area and to much, much more surrealism was involved and more, frankly, depravity of the characters, especially the bad guys. And in the case of Django, this movie became such a sensation. It, it took Spaghetti Westerns to a different place, a much more violent place, a much rougher, more brutal, uh, and even more surreal type of the West. And just as an example of how violent the movie was at, at the time, it was banned in England up until the 90s. 
you could not show Django in England up until the 90s. In fact, one of the only ways to ever see Django in England is in the, the movie Harder They Come, the Jimmy Cliff movie. Jimmy Cliff go, uh, goes to a theater and watches Django, and you see him in the theater watching Django, and you see a bit of Django on the screen. Uh, and there's, and they play a whole mirror aspect of Jimmy Cliff is like Django. He's the outlaw on the run. Uh, and that was the only time you could ever see Django on, this, on the screens in, of England. England, is if you went and saw the little clip of it that was in The Harder They Come. Um, and it never really received a proper release in the United States. It was just when uh, Franco was here filming Camelot. Camelot that he had, I think, four private screenings that he invited, like Steve McQueen and uh, Terrence, Terrence Young, Young yeah. uh, uh, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, too. other actors were there. Yeah. And, it, and it was well received, but yeah. just never got distributed right. really. And this would have been probably I'm not sure when they filmed Camelot, 66, 67. Yeah. So the Leone films may not have even been released True. here yet cuz they were released in 67 or maybe they were just being released. So it also would have been something new for American audiences. Mm -hmm. Um you know, they hadn't even seen Clint Eastwood yet. Would you say that that level of violence is the trademark of a spaghetti western? Yes. I mean more so than the Yes, I mean the American. Yeah, that was one of the things that spaghetti westerns did was amp up the violence. Mm -hmm. In fact, the name, the term spaghetti western was uh, coined by American critics as a derisive uh, term for these westerns. Mm -hmm. It later became, you know, popularized by people who love them and, and mm -hmm. saw it as a positive. Yeah, lots of violence, lots of torture, beatings. Mm -hmm. Like there's almost always a scene where Clint Eastwood's getting beaten or, <laughs> you know, uh, by the bad guys and uh, and you certainly wouldn't see like Randolph Scott getting his no, hands mangled, mangled yeah. And... yeah one eye Jacks the Marlon Brando mm -hmm. Western kind of anticipates and what year is that that was like 63 I think 62 okay. 63 there's a scene where Carl Malden breaks Brando's gun hand after whipping mm -hmm. him and this takes that to the extreme i mean his hands are just a bloody pulpy mess it's like ground meat or something yeah and actually i mean the name django is kind of a horrible joke of, of a reference to the the famed jazz guitarist django reinhardt right. whose fourth and fifth fingers on his hand were crippled but he continued to play guitar amazingly right. despite that <laughs> <laughs> and uh, django amazingly can still shoot his gun yeah. um yeah the, the spaghetti westerns definitely had a lot of violence they took everything to an extreme in terms of wardrobe in terms of music in terms of the way they were shot and, and... i mean it's all part of the stylization i think of yeah. the western yeah the way they use color like you say the the costumes are a lot more like fashion forward I yeah would even say <laughs> like a lot of fringe yes and, and dusters and yeah and more like representative of the 60s and 70s Yes. I think kind of like hippie culture. Yeah, even. definitely. Yeah, uh, Corbucci's films too uh, also get in. Like he's got one called Specialist that have mm -hmm. like even a group of hippies in it. The hats, you know, or everything's much cooler looking. Yes. And I think they appealed to people who loved like James Bond movies and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Hmm. The counterculture because they were very cynical and the hero was not really very good. Clint Eastwood famously watches a kid, a little boy, get beaten up in the beginning of A Fistful of Dollars. Mm -hmm. Like, and you know, John Wayne would have intervened, but uh, this new hero does not. You yeah, know, they're sort of an anti-hero. And all that stylization it comes across to me as a little bit of a fantasy. Yeah. Um, that's that's sort of my view of the Spaghetti Western is it's a, a fantasized version of the Western where, like you say, everything is elevated, everything's a little bit more colorful, not quite as uh, historically or even logically realistic the way things work. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a superhero quality sometimes to the heroes. Yes. Like in Django, the way he has this amazing gunfighting power. I mean, he can 
take down six guys right. with seemingly like one shot. Right. <laughs> and, well, he takes out like five guys in the bar, one behind his back yeah. without looking. And uh, yeah, these the gunfighters in these movies always have superhuman abilities mm-hmm. as far as their accuracy and their speed and, and all that kind of thing. And just I think seeing it through a European lens sort of separates us one degree further from yes. the actual American West. Well, like you were saying, like the signage and the towns, mm-hmm. they all just look a little bit off. Yeah. You know, and not that that's a bad thing. It's part of the what makes them interesting, what right. makes them different. But yeah. like you, I think, compared it to sci-fi. A little yeah, bit. I mean, it's <laughs> like seeing a, if you, if you want to call Star Wars a space western, it's right. almost like that. Like seeing seeing a western story through this other genre. Yeah, even. it doesn't quite feel like it's the real west. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and there's no, like, they're, they're never about the taming of the land or... Mm-hmm. Rarely are there Native Americans in yeah. them. You know, it's just sort of are these... There, there are no, like, wagon trains right, or, right. yeah, prairie life. It's usually these superhuman gunfighters, you know, doing battle with each other. And there are a few townspeople maybe get caught up in the middle of it. But yeah. that's that's sort of it, you yeah. know. And Nero, like you said, was, like, 23, 24 mm-hmm. when he made this movie and kind of launched him to stardom. He would go on to make a number of westerns. Uh, the Spaghetti's sort of died in the early 70s. There was a brief... China resurgence in the late 70s and he was in that in one of those Kaoma um, which was a, a I think a very good western but didn't really revive the genre yeah I think I prefer Kaoma yeah but uh, he is pretty studly in Django <laughs> And I told you that he had asked the makeup men on the yeah. film to draw crow's feet as, around his eyes to give him a little weathered look because he was so young at I the time I didn't even notice I was, yeah. I was blinded by lost uh, in his baby yeah. blues mm-hmm. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I think it works. Like, if you see him in a film comp around the same time where he doesn't have that, mm-hmm. you can notice it. Yeah. But, yeah, he made two other westerns with Corbucci, The Mercenary in 1968 and Compañeros in 1970. And both of those he plays a European mercenary who gets paired with a Mexican peasant uh, during the Mexican Revolution. They both have Jack Palance in them as villains. I'd basically describe those as the mercenary is the Compañeros as Rio Bravo is to El Dorado. Mm-hmm. They're sort of mm-hmm. the same story, but, mm-hmm. you know, with a few minor details. And those are both very good as well. I'd recommend those to anybody. I mean, at that point in time, wouldn't you say Franco was like a Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson level Ab- of, like, fame and absolutely. idolatry as, like, yes. a man? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The godliest man I know. Send what? Probably the leading actor of the the westerns at that time, because Eastwood would have would have already left for America after doing the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and uh, you know he was up there with Giuliano Gemma, yeah, uh, Terrence Hill, and the DP of this movie, Enzo Barboni, mm-hmm. uh, later would become a director under the name E. B. Clutcher, and he directed the Trinity movies with mm-hmm. Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. They call me Trinity, and Trinity is still my name which were spoofs of spaghetti westerns, but outgrossed all of them and became like yeah. the highest grossing movies in Italy. So Isn't that how it always goes? Yeah. yeah. Talking about the casting of this movie, you know, Nero was reluctant to be in it. The producers and director were considering two other actors, um, American actor Mark Damon, who had been in Ringo and His Golden Pistol, another Corbucci film, and Spanish actor Peter Martel. They basically sent headshots of the three of them to the Italian distributor, and he just picked one, and it happened to be Nero. And that's how he got this, the part. Um, that's so. how it works sometimes. Yep. Talking about the character of Django in, in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. When I first thought about it, I thought, oh, it maybe is a little bit of a subversion of like the hero's journey and that he's like superhuman and then um, sort of becomes immoral and, and uh, controlled by greed and his want for 
uh, gold and then uh, gets into like a, a really low place, which is actually standard for for the hero, right? But, and and gets his hand crushed and then almost submits. I mean, again, we don't want to spoil too much, but right. And, and at first, I thought it was kind of interesting to see the character go in that direction. Sure. But then I went back to how the screenplay was written or non-existent, and I was like, right. oh no, that, that's just <laughs> they just threw something together and got lucky that it, it, that it formed anything that whole. It clicked. Yeah, they, so I threw that theory out the window. <laughs> Yeah, they started shooting, I guess, around right before Christmas of 1965. They shot, like, one scene. Yeah, where he kind of woos uh, Maria, the woman. Yeah, and then uh, they shut down over the holidays and cobbled together a script. Corbucci with his brother Bruno, and there are several other writers credited. I think um, they got, like, a little bit of an extension from the producers, yeah. which isn't a good sign, usually. <laughs> And then came back in January and shot through February, I think, mm -hmm. of 66. It does feel like two separate movies a little bit. And I think that's then perfect that there are 30 Django's that yes. come after it that bear no resemblance to the original. None. Because it isn't like a written character. So right. that's fine right. that it exists in this world of its own where it can be anything and anyone right i guess yeah and i guess due to the vagaries of italian copyright law or something that um <laughs> you they mean would... it's not <laughs> locked up i and... know <laughs> so movies in different territories would just be named django versus sartana mm -hmm. or something and even though maybe there's no character named django in the movie it was just uh, they use the title to uh draw people in um and there's one that franco returns for yes in the 80s in 87 yeah. there was an official sequel um django strikes again where django comes out of retirement to rescue his wife from um hungarian slavers and i think it mm -hmm. even takes place in south america i've seen it a long mm -hmm. time ago i don't remember much about it it doesn't really feel like a Western. It's kind of an odd, odd movie. And then John Sayles was reportedly yeah. writing a screenplay for a new Django film. Like this was reported like a year or two ago, mm -hmm. I think, in which Django was like a wrangler in Hollywood, I think working on Birth of a Nation mm -hmm. and gets crossways with some members of the KKK. I hope that's still out there. Yeah. I'd love if to see that. If anyone knows John Sayles, <laughs> leave him alone and just let yes. him finish the script. Or give, or him, give him some money. Whatever, yeah. yeah. But like some of the other <laughs> Django films made were... Uh, Django the Bastard, um, Django Prepare a Coffin, which stars Terrence Hill, and he's dressed in the blue Union coat and dark hat like Franco Nero. That's one of the better ones, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Django Shoot, If You Live, Kill. Mm. Um, that's actually a pretty good movie. It's very surreal and strange. Huh. It stars Tomas Milian, uh, another big spaghetti western star. So I'd check that out if you can find it. Yeah, there were there were quite a number, like oh, over 30. And mm -hmm. then, of course, Tarantino made Django Unchained, which really bears no resemblance to the original film at all mm -mm. it opens with the song from the original film he uses the original song and then franco nero cameos in it what's your name django can you spell it d j a n g o the d is silent i know but otherwise, no real resemblance yeah. to... Yeah, I mean, we even debate whether it's a West, could be called a Western. True, Given true. that a lot of it takes place in the South. In Mississippi, and, and yeah. yeah. Although it does have some tropes of the West sure, as well. Yeah. But. I also wanted to talk about how 
you might say it's a precursor to uh, 1970s filmmaking, yeah. more broadly, and American uh, 70s filmmaking. When we were watching it, I even asked you what year was it, because I would have guessed it was more towards the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. Given the, the visual style and some of the elements it used, you get a lot of the, the zoom lens and the long lens, mm-hmm. which you said was actually common in Italian filmmaking of the time. Yeah, right? the, the Italian westerns would use a lot of zoom lenses and stuff. But yeah. to me, that comes off as the sort of paranoid thrillers of, of American filmmaking in the 1970s, sure. the parallax view and uh, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, it doesn't really feel very 60s, I, I would agree in its look. And also, it sort of anticipates, in a way, what they called the mud and rags westerns of the early 70s, revisionist westerns like... Um, Dirty Little Billy and the Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid, where everything was like real dirty and, mm-hmm. you know, ratty clothes. And because this film is different than a lot of other Italian Westerns in that it's takes place primarily in a, in this one town and the streets are just caked with mud. It is a bleak village. Very bleak. And it's got gray skies. It's very wintry yeah. and... Um, I think Corbucci originally wanted it to be a snow western, but his wife talked him into uh, the, the mud being uh, a, a good use of uh, the western, or a, good, a different look for the western, rather. And Django just gets more and more caked in mud yes, as the film yes. goes on. There's a scene where the prostitutes get in a fight in yeah. the mud, and they're just covered. Gratuitous uh, horror mud fight. But yeah, it's a, it has, it's a different look, because most of the westerns, like you think of the Leone westerns, they're shot, all, almost all the exteriors are in Spain, so you've got desert, and they're, the deserts are doubling for, like, El Paso and New Mexico. and um, Yeah, so this looks more like a McCabe and Mrs. Miller yeah, minus the snow, exactly. which is, of course, one of your great 70s westerns. Yes, yeah, which also I think it would fall into the mud and rags yeah. uh, era. And, and it, too, I mean, it plays on the more extravagant costumes yes, and yes. Uh, interesting music. Um, yes, it's definitely a different uh, take on the Western. Um, and I would say probably an influence on Kaoma yes. uh, with the songs and, and the look of it as mm-hmm. well. Uh, with Django, another thing people often think of is the theme song, which is famous. Yeah. Um, but there's another moment right before the big first the gunfight re- with, where uh, Django takes out his machine gun. Yeah, the reveal of the, the machine gun scene, yeah. Where uh, the music is is sort of introducing the villain major jackson yeah and it's just very discordant it's like screeching it sounds like a a train screeching on the rails or something and it kind of took me by surprise and is a little avant-garde i would say for the for the era it's very yeah dissonant music and uh yeah it's really i liked it i thought it was interesting yeah And Major Jackson, who's an ex-Confederate, they hate the Mexicans. They're, you know, murdering them, murdering peons in the street. Um, and they all, like, some of them wear red hoods, like yeah. the KKK, like versions of the KKK, or they wear red scarves. And there's some sort of historical component to that. We're not sure if they were aware of that yeah. or it was just kind of a coincidence. Like, there were the red shirts mm-hmm. in the post-Confederate era who were openly, you know, pro-Confederate and... and it definitely reads as KKK, though. Yeah, it and, does. Oh, yeah. And before I knew about the the real historic red shirts, mm-hmm. I assumed it was another one of those like Italians taking liberties with American history, and, right? And referencing this the KKK, uh, but sort of doing it in their own in their own like quote unquote sci fi way. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> 
and it may have been that. I'm not this sure. This vibrant costume that yeah. really stands out, and probably more so even than than white hoods. And... Yeah, it's a very bright red. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd heard somewhere that some of the uh, or read somewhere that some of the the extras wearing the red hoods that it was done because they had to use the same extras over and over, mm-hmm. and so they were hiding their faces, which may also have been that's clever filmmaking. Yeah. on on the cheap. <laughs> It, I think it is probably a good use of the low budget. I, I don't know what the budget was, yeah. but it looks really good for what I assume was cheap. Yeah. And <laughs> you it, have some, some stunning shots of the landscape. and Right. And and it was shot primarily on the back lot uh, at this town in, in Rome. A little bit shot in Spain. Uh, the scene where they robbed the, the uh, fort and steal the gold was Spain. Um, but mostly, you know, on the back lot or in, in and around Rome. Not to get too political, but it is an interesting film to watch in today's American climate True. with the wall and uh, politics towards immigrants and, and Mexico. Given that you have this character, Major Jackson, who is vehemently racist right. towards Mexicans, wears red right. uh, clothing <laughs> and and sort of gets his due because yeah. of it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, yeah, definitely in, in terms of today. Um, another thing about the look of the film, it was not shot in technoscope, which is sort of a cheaper version of cinemascope, as most of the Italian westerns were. Um, it was shot in uh, 166 to 1, which is like a standard European ratio, not very wide, um, and that kind of gave it a little bit different mm-hmm. uh, look, I thought, as well. Like, you don't have the the really extreme Leone-type close-ups and stuff, yeah. I think. And you do have also, I think, another excellent way to get around having a low budget, but maintaining uh, impressive visuals and imp- impressive moments is just the use of, like, the coffin. That's something I think everybody remembers, and the use of the gun. Yeah. Just these sort of iconic pieces, and, and even the, the red scarves and red uh, red hoods. That's true. That's a good point. I think it's, like, an iconic bridge that they use. I really remembered it from the first time I watched it. Right. Uh, like, the ear-cutting scene. Yeah. Uh, it's a simple moment, but really stands out, and I think uh, Corbucci does a really good job of highlighting these small moments and small icons to make a what could have been a small film much bigger yes, and much more memorable. that's true. All those moments really land and make an impression yeah. on you. Yeah, that's a good point. And even just the character Django doesn't really talk a lot, but his look is so strong, and, yeah. the, and Franco really makes the most of the quiet and yeah. the silence, and that speaks well to the, the idea of the, the Western hero as being very strong, silent yes, type. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and his wardrobe is very distinct and different from everybody else. Yeah. Um, with, his, with his overcoat from the Union Army and dark hat and, and uh, yeah. And speaking of the silence of the character, that was another thing you pointed out, is a difference between this sort of filmmaking and the Tarantino style of filmmaking. Yes, yes. Is, uh, a bit more wordy. Right, and, as much and as... And not really what you think of in a Western. True, true. I mean, as much as Tarantino loves Italian Westerns and stuff, uh, his movies are far more talkative than an italian western would ever be i, I mean, mean even just casting jamie fox yeah as the lead role he i mean he's known for his voice yeah honestly yeah as, as a singer and an actor and a comedian absolutely yeah and even christoph waltz who yes. has a powerful mastery of language in that <laughs> film you silver tongue devil you I mean, we're not talking about Django Unchained. Right. But I just thought I would bring it up. Yeah, it is a different. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't really have the, the influence of of the Italian westerns in that sense. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, even in in Django in this film, uh, Maria, the woman, doesn't really speak much, but right. she she has a strong look. Yes. And I think makes the most of her time on screen. Yes. And, yeah. 
works well with Django as a character. And and then before we go, uh, before we wrap this up, I think... Uh, we do have to say that Clarence does have a little bit of a personal connection to Franco. I'm sure he's uh, too humble to tell it, but I'll make him. <laughs> In the late uh, 90s, when I first moved to Hollywood, to California, I had written a script that was an homage to Spaghetti Westerns, a feature-length script. And a buddy of mine, uh, Jeff, we were trying to get the film made, produced, and uh, you know, cheaply as if we could do it. And I had written a part for Nero. And Jeff somehow found a way to get it to him. I'm not sure if it went through his agent or whatever, but he got a phone call from Nero personally, and he wanted to meet us and talk about the script. So, you know, I was like just completely <laughs> thrilled. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So we met him at uh, the Coffee Bean on Sunset. So it was, you know, totally Hollywood and cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came and talked to us for, you know, not very long. But we just sort of talked about what we had in mind and he he wanted he had some notes on the script and wanted to to discuss it more and i think he was just trying to gauge like who we were and how serious this was and you know we didn't know what we were doing and we were you know hoping to get it done and so we met and he was very nice you know it was really cool meeting him he called the house a couple of times and <laughs> talked to me he once he wanted to give the script to uh italian screenwriter sergio donati who wrote a lot of leone's pictures and he goes he wanted to give it to him and let him you know make notes and take a crack at it. i was like absolutely <laughs> you know um he thought this my script was kind of naive which i, I think was totally true and i was like yeah i mean whatever you yeah. know if, if we can do this if and... i can ghostwrite for yes. sergio like come on <laughs> No, it was amazing, but uh, obviously nothing ever happened of it uh, with it. And uh, there's still hope. There's still hope. I, we talked to him like maybe two or three more times, and that was it. Um, and we just could never raise any money for the film. Um, but it was it was it was a thrill uh, to meet him. Yeah, it was really exciting, and he was he was a nice guy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> meet your heroes. Yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> I think that's about it for the film today. Yeah. I've been Felicity and this is Clarence. (laughs) We will uh, see you next time with another Western. Um, Not sure what we're going to do next, but uh, it'll be something uh, of interest, hopefully. So thanks again from me, Felicity, him, Clarence, and the spirit of Mario Brega. Adios.